Chapter Five of Flowing Gold by Rex Beach. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For perhaps half an hour, the women tried on one piece of jewelry after another, exclaiming, admiring, arguing. Then the mother realized with a start that mealtime was near, and that the menfolk would soon be home. Leaving Ali to entertain their guest, she hurried out, and the sound of splitting kindling, the clatter of stove lids, the rattle of utensils came from the kitchen. Gray retired to the patent rocker. Miss Briscoe settled herself upon a straight-backed chair and folded her capable hands in her lap. An oppressive silence fell upon the room. Evidently, the duties of hostess lay with crushing weight upon the girl, for her face became stony, her cheeks paled, her eyes glazed. The power of speech completely failed her, and she answered Gray with nods or shakes of her head. The most that he could elicit from her were brief yeps and nopes. It was not unlike a spirit reading or a Ouija board seance. He told himself in terms of the oil fields that here was a dry well, that the girl was a duster. Having exhausted the usual commonplace topics in the course of a monologue that induced no reaction whatever, he voiced a perfectly natural remark about the wonder of sudden riches. He was, in a way, thinking aloud of the changes wrought in drab lives like the Briscoes by the discovery of oil. He was surprised when Allegheny responded, Ma and me stand it all right, but it's an awful strain on Posh, said she. Indeed. The girl nodded. He's got more nutty notions. Gray endeavored to learn the nature of Pa's recently acquired eccentricities, but Allie was flushing and paling as a result of her sudden excursion into the audible. Eventually she trembled upon the verge of speech once more. Then she took another desperate plunge. He says folks are going to laugh at us, or with us, and, and rich people have got to act rich. They've got to be elegant. She laughed loudly, abruptly. The explosive nature of the sound startled her as greatly as it did her hearer. He's going to get somebody to teach Buddy and me how to behave. I think he's right, Gray said quietly. Why, he sent to Fort Worth for a piano already, and for a lady to come out for a couple of days and show me how to play it. There was another black hiatus in the conversation. We haven't got a spare room, but I'm quick at learning tunes. She could bunk in with me for a night or two. Gray eyed the speaker suspiciously, but it was evident that she was in sober earnest and the tragedy of such profound ignorance smote the man sharply. Here was a girl of at least average intelligence and of a sensitive makeup, a girl with looks, too, in spite of her size, and no doubt a full share of common sense, perhaps even talents of some sort, yet with the knowledge of a child. For the first time he realized what playthings of fate are men and women, how completely circumstance can make or mar them, and what utter paralysis results from the strangling grip of poverty. History hints that during the Middle Ages there flourished an association known as 
Comprachicos, child buyers, which traded in children. The Comprachicos bought little human beings and defigured their features, distorted their bodies, fashioned them into ludicrous, grotesque, or hideous monstrosities for king and populace to laugh at, and then resold them. Soft, immature faces were made into animal likenesses. Tender, unformed bodies were put in wicker forms or porcelain vases and allowed to grow. Then, when they had become things of compressed flesh and twisted bone, the wicker was cut, the vase was broken, leaving a man in the shape of a bottle or a mug. This is precisely what environment does. In the case of Allegheny Briscoe, poverty, the drought, the grinding hardships of these hard-scrabble Texas counties had dwarfed the intellect, the very soul of a splendid young animal. Or so, at least, Gray told himself. It was a thought that evoked profound consideration. Now that the girl was beginning to lose her painful embarrassment, she showed to somewhat better advantage, and no longer impressed him as bovine, stolid, almost stupid. He could not but note again her full young figure, her well-shaped, well-poised head, and her regular features, and the pity of it seemed all the greater by reason thereof. He tried to visualize her perfectly groomed, clad in a smart gown molded over a well-fitting corset, with her feet properly shod and her hair dressed, but the task was beyond him. Probably she had never worn a corset, never seen a pair of silk stockings. He thought, too, of what was in store for her, and wondered how she would fit into the new world she was about to enter. Not very well, he feared. Might not this prove to be the happiest period of all her new life? He asked himself. And yet the wonder and the glory of the new estate left room in her imagination for little else. The mold was broken, but the child was not conscious of its bottle shape. Nevertheless, the shape was there. When that child learned the truth, when it heard the laughter and felt the ridicule, what then? He could not bring himself to envy Allegheny Briscoe. First off, Ma and me are going over to Dallas to do some trading, the girl was saying. After that, we're going to the mountains. Your mother mentioned mountains. Yep, her and Pa have always been crazy about mountains, but they never seen them. That's the first thing Ma said when number one blowed in. When we saw that oil go over the crown block, and when they told us that black stuff was really oil, Ma burst out crying and said she'd see the mountains, after all. Then she wouldn't mind if she died. Pa, he cried, too. We always been so poor, you see. Ma's kind of marked about mountains. Been that way since she was a girl. She cuts out stories and pictures of them, and that's how me and Buddy came to be named Allegheny and Ozark. But we never expected to see them. The drought burned us out too often. Allegheny and Ozark, quaint names. Times must have been hard, the remark was intended only as a spur. Hard? There was a pause. Slowly the girl's eyes began to smolder. And, as she went on, in her deliberate way, memory set a tragic shadow over her face. I'll say they was hard. Nobody but us nesters knows what hard times is. Out west here, 
they went three years without rain, and all around here people was starving. Grown folks was thin and tired, and children was sickly. They was too peaked to play. Why, we took in a whole family. Wagon folks. Their horses died, and they couldn't go on, so we kept them till we burned out. I don't know how we managed to get by except that Pa and Buddy are rustlers, and I can do more in a hired hand. We never had enough to eat. Stuff just wouldn't grow. The stock got bonier and bonier and finally died, counting no grass and the tanks drying out. And all that time the sun was a-blazing and the dust was a-blowing and the clouds would roll up, then drift away, and the sun would come out hotter never. Day after day, month after month, we waited. Eighteen, I think it was. People got so they wouldn't pray no more, and the preachers moved away. I guess we was as bad off as them poor folks in Belgium. Why, even the rattlesnakes pulled out of the country. Somehow the papers got hold of it, and by me by, some grub was shipped in and give around. But us Briscoes didn't get none. Pa'd die before he'd beg. The girl was herself now. She was talking naturally, feelingly, and her voice was both deep and pleasing. The thinner Ma got, the more she talked about the mountains, where there was water, cool, clear water in the creeks, and timber on the hills, timber with green leaves on it, and grass that you could lay down in and smell. I guess Ma was kind of feverish. We was drier in a lime-burner's boot when the rain did come. I'll never forget. We all stood out in it and soaked it up. It was wonderful to get wet and soaky and not with sweat. Then on top of that, the oil came, too. It must have been wonderful. Yep, now we're rich, and buying diamonds and pianos and going to Dallas for pretty fixins. Seems kind of dreamy. Allegheny Briscoe closed her eyes. Her massive crown of damp, disordered hair drooped backward, and for a moment Gray was able, unobserved, to study her. She had revealed herself to him suddenly, in the space of a few moments, and the revelation added such poignancy to his previous thoughts that he regarded her with a wholly new sympathy. There was nothing dull about this girl. On the contrary, she had intelligence and feeling. There had been a rich vibrance in her voice as she told of that frightful ordeal. A dimness had come into her eyes as she spoke of her mother's gabbling feverishly of the green hills and babbling brooks. She had yearned maternally at mention of those wretched little children. No, there was a sincere emotional quality concealed in this young giantess, and a sensitiveness quite unexpected. Gray remained silent until she opened her eyes, then he said, When you and your mother come to Dallas to do your shopping, won't you let me take you around to the right shops? and see that you get the right things. Then, prompted by the girl's quick resentment, he added hastily, at the right prices. Allie's face cleared. Why, that's right nice of you, she declared. I, I reckon we'd be glad to. Gus Briscoe was a sandy, angular man. A ring of air holes cut in the crown of his faded felt hat showed a head of hair faded to match the color of his headgear. His greasy overalls were tucked in the boots, and a ragged Joseph's coat 
covered his flannel shirt. Both the man and his makeup were thoroughly typical of this part of the country, except in one particular. Pa Briscoe possessed the brightest, the shrewdest pair of blue eyes that Calvin Gray had ever seen, and they were surrounded by a network of prepossessing wrinkles. He came directly in to greet his visitor, then said, I never expected you'd come way out here to bring your plunder with you. Ma says you got a whole grip full of diamonds. I have indeed. Gray pointed to the glittering display still spread out upon the varied colored counterpane. Briscoe approached the bed and gazed curiously, silently, down at the treasure. Then his face broke into a sunshiny smile. He wiped his hands upon his trousers' legs and picked up a ring. But instead of examining the jewel, he looked at the price mark, after which his smile broadened. Ozark had entered behind his father, and his sister introduced him now. He was a year or two younger than Allegheny, but cast in the same heroic mold. They formed a massive pair of children, indeed, and, as in her case, a sullen distrust of strangers was inherent in him. He stared coldly, resentfully at Gray, mumbled an unintelligible greeting, then rudely turned his back upon the visitor and joined his father. The elder Briscoe spoke first, and it was evident that he feared to betray lack of conservatism, for he said, with admirable restraint, Likely-looking lot of trinkets, huh, bud? Bud grunted. After a moment he inquired of Gray, how much is that whole lot worth, mister? Close to a hundred thousand dollars. Brother and sister exchanged glances. Their father considered briefly, smilingly. Then he said, With oil at three and a quarter, it wouldn't take long for a twelve hundred barreler to get the whole caboodle, would it? Is your well producing twelve hundred barrels a day? Huh, Briscoe Jr. grinned at his sister exposing a mouthful of teeth as white and as sound as railroad crockery. But his next words were directed at Gray. We got four wells, and the poorest one is making twelve hundred barrel. The guest's mental calculations as to the Briscoe's royalties were interrupted by an announcement that dinner was ready, whereupon the father announced, Mister, it looks like you'd have to stay overnight with us "'cause I got important business after dinner, "'and I wouldn't trust Ma to pick out no jewelry by herself. "'Them prices would scare her to death. "'We're ignorant people, and we ain't used to spending money. "'So it'll take time for us to make up our minds. "'Can you wait?' "'I'll stay as long as you'll keep me,' Gray declared heartily. "'A moment later, having learned that a place at the table "'had been set for his driver as well as himself, "'Gray stepped out to summon the man.' and to effect the necessary change in his arrangements. He was not surprised to find the chauffeur with nose flattened against the pane of the front-room window, his hand cupped over his eyes. Ignoring the fellow's confusion at being discovered, Gray told him of his change of plan and instructed him to drive back to Ranger and return late the following afternoon. Then he led the way toward the kitchen. That stay at Briscoe's turned out to be less irksome than the visitor had anticipated, for the afternoon was spent with Buddy examining the Briscoe Wells and others nearby. 
It was an interesting experience, and Gray obtained a deal of first-hand information that he believed would come in handy. Buddy's first mistrust was not long in passing, and once Gray had penetrated his guard, the boy was won completely. The pendulum swung to the opposite extreme, and ere long, suspicion changed to liking, then to approval, and at last to open, extravagant admiration. And Gray liked the youthful giant, too, once the latter had dropped his hostility and had become his natural self. For Ozark was a lad with temper and with temperament. They got along together swimmingly. In fact, they grew thicker than thieves in the course of time. The elder man soon became conscious of the fact that he was being studied, analyzed, even copied, the sincerest form of flattery, and it pleased his vanity. Buddy's mind was thirsty, his curiosity was boundless. Questions popped out of him at every step, and every answer, every bit of information or of philosophy that fell from the visitor's lips, he pounced upon, avidly examined, then carefully put away for future use. He was like a magpie filling its nest. Gray's personal habits, mannerisms, tricks, all were grist for Buddy's mill. The stranger's suit, for instance, was a curiosity to the boy, who could not understand wherein it was so different from any other he had ever seen. Young Briscoe attributed that difference to the fact that it had probably come from a bigger store than any he had known. It amazed him to learn, in answer to a pointed question, that it had been cut and fitted to the wearer by expert workmen. It disappointed him bitterly to be informed that there was not another one exactly like it which he could buy. And the visitor's silk shirt, with double cuffs and a monogram on the sleeve? Fancy fixin's like this, Buddy confessed. He had always associated with women folk, but if Gray wore them, there could be nothing disgraceful, nothing effeminate about the practice. There was a decided thrill in the prospect of possessing such finery, all initialed with huge silken OBs. Life was presenting wholly novel and exciting possibilities to the youth. When Gray offered him a cigarette, Buddy rudely took the gold case out of his hand and examined it. Then he laughed in raucous delight. Gosh, I never knew men had pretty things. I'm going to get me one like that. Do you like it? Gee, it's swell. Good. I'll make you a present of it. Buddy stared at the speaker in speechless surprise. What, what for? He finally stammered. Because you admire it. Why, it's solid gold, ain't it? To be sure. How much did it cost? My dear fellow, Gray protested, you shouldn't ask questions like that. You embarrass me. Buddy examined the object anew, then he inquired, Say, why'd you offer to give me this? I just told you Gray was becoming impatient. It's a custom in some countries to present an object to one who is polite enough to admire it. Nobody never give me a present, Buddy said. Not one that I wanted. I never had nothing that I didn't have to have or couldn't get along without. The cigarette case is worth more than all the stuff I ever owned and I'm sure obliged to you. He replaced the article in Gray's hand. Ah, you won't accept it? Why not? Oh, I don't know. 
Gray pondered this refusal for a moment before saying, Perhaps you think I'm trying to make a good impression on you, so you'll buy some diamonds. Maybe. Buddy averted his eyes. He was in real distress. Uh-huh. I ought to punch your head. Gray slipped the case into young Briscoe's pocket. I don't have to bribe people. Some day you'll realize that I like you. Honest? Cross my heart. The boy laughed in frank delight. His brown cheeks colored, his eyes sparkled. Gosh, he said, I like you. For some time thereafter, he remained red and silent. But he kept one big hand in the pocket where lay the gold cigarette case. There was a wordless song in Buddy Briscoe's heart, for he had made a friend and such a friend. The Briscoe children possessed each other's fullest confidence, hence Ozark took the first occasion to show his gift to Allegheny, and to tell her in breathless excitement all about that wonderful afternoon. He said he had a mind to lick me, and I bet he could have done it, too, the boy concluded. Lick you? Huh. Oh, he's hard-boiled. That's why I like him. He's been round the world and speaks foreign languages like a native. That suit of clothes was made for him, and he's got thirty others, all better than this one. Shoes, too. Made special in New York. Forty dollars a pair. What's he doing here if he's so rich? It was the doubting female of the species speaking. Drummers is terrible liars. Buddy flew to the defense of his hero. He's doing this to help a friend. Told me all about it. I'm going to have thirty suits. Shoes don't cost forty dollars. Clothes don't cost that much. Allie regarded her brother keenly, understandingly. Then she said somberly, It ain't no use, Buddy. What ain't? It ain't no use to wish. Maybe you can have thirty suits. If the wells hold out. But they won't look like his. And me too. We're too big, Buddy. And the more money we got, the more clothes we put on, the more folks is going to laugh at us. It shames me to go places with anybody but you. He wouldn't laugh. He's been all over the world, the boy asserted. Then, after some deliberation, I'll bet he's seen bigger people than us. As a matter of fact, Allegheny's sensitiveness about her size had been quickly apparent to Gray, and during that day he did his utmost to overcome it, but with what success he could not know. Buddy was his, body and soul, that much was certain. He made the conquest doubly secure by engaging the young behemoth in a scuffle and playfully putting him on his back. Defeat at other hands than Gray's would have enraged Ozark to the point of frenzy. It would have been considered by him an indignity and a disgrace. Now, however, he looked upon it as a natural and wholly satisfactory demonstration of his idol's supreme prowess. And he roared with delight at being bested. Gray promptly taught him the wrestling trick by which he had accomplished the feat, and flattered the boy immensely by refusing to again try his skill. The older man, when he really played, could enter into a sport with tremendous zest, and did so now. He taught Buddy trick after trick. They matched each other in feats of strength and agility. They wound up finally on opposite sides of the Briscoe kitchen table, elbows planted, fingers interlocked, straining furiously 
in that muscle-racking, joint-cracking pastime of the lumber camps known as Twisting Arms. Here again Gray was victorious, until he showed Buddy how to gain greater leverage by changing the position of his wrist and by slightly altering his grip, whereupon the boy's superior strength told. They were red in the face, out of breath, and soaked with perspiration, when Pa Briscoe drove up in his expensive new touring car. By this time Buddy's admiration had turned to adulation. He had passed under the yoke, and he gloried shamelessly in his captive state. At supper time he appeared with his hair wetly combed in imitation of Gray's. He wore a necktie, too, and in it he had fastened a cheap brass stick-pin, much as Gray wore his. During the meal he watched how the guest used his knife and fork and made awkward attempts to do likewise. But a table-fork was an instrument which, heretofore, Buddy had looked upon as a weapon of pure offense. Like a whaler's harpoon, and conveniently designed either for spearing edibles beyond his reach or for retrieving fragments of meat lurking between his back teeth. He even did some hasty manicuring under the edge of the table with his jackknife. Pa Briscoe was scarcely less observant than his son. He watched Gray's every move. He sounded him out adroitly. He pondered his lightest word. After the supper things had been cleared away and the dishes washed, the entire family adjourned to the front room and again examined the jewelry. It was an absorbing task. They did not hurry it. Not until the following afternoon, in fact, did they finally make their selections, and then they were guided almost wholly by the good taste of their guest. Gray did not exploit them. On the contrary, his effort was to limit their extravagance. But in this he had little success, for Pa Briscoe, had decided to indulge his generous impulses to the full and insisted upon doing so. The check he finally wrote was one of five figures. By this time the visitor had become aware of arousing a queer reaction in Allegheny Briscoe. He had overcome her diffidence early enough. He had unsealed her lips. He had obtained an insight into her character. But once that was done, the girl retired within herself again and he could get nothing more out of her. He would have believed that she actually disliked him, had it not been for the fact that whatever he said, she took his gospel, that whenever he chanced to be there, she was. Her ears open, her somber meditative eyes fixed upon him. Evidently, she did not actually dislike him. He decided finally that she was studying him, striving to analyze and to weigh him, to her own complete satisfaction, before trusting him further than she had. When it drew near time for him to leave, he announced that the driver of his hired car had been instructed to return for him. There was protest loud and earnest from the Briscoes, father and son. Buddy actually sulked at being denied the pleasure of driving his hero to town in the new car, and told about a smooth place on a certain detour where he could get her up to sixty miles an hour. If it was longer, she'd do a hundred, he declared. Pa Briscoe was worried for the security of the diamonds, and assured Gray that it was unsafe to trust those service car drivers. But the latter, seeing a threat to his carefully matured plans, refused to listen. 
There is one thing you can do for me, he told them. You can give me a pint of cream. Cream? What for? The family regarded him with amazement. I'm fond of it. If you have no cream, milk will do. Pshaw! I'll put up a whole basket of lunch for you, Mrs. Briscoe declared. Buddy, go kill a rooster, and you, Allie, get them eggs out of the nest in the garden, and a jar of them peach preserves while I make up a pan of biscuits. Protest was unavailing. When the others had hurried away, Pa Briscoe said, I've been studying you, Mr. Gray, and I got you down as a first-class man. When Ma and Allie come over to Dallas to get rigged out, I'd like you to help them. They ain't never been further from home than Cisco. That's thirty miles. I'll pay you for your time. Gray's hearty acceptance of the first and his prompt refusal of the second proposal pleased the speaker. Being rich is mighty fine, but... Gus Briscoe shook his head doubtfully. It takes a lot of thinking, and I ain't used to thinking. Someday, maybe, I'll get you to give me a hand in figuring out some worries. Business worries? No, I got enough of them and more coming, but it ain't that. We're going to have a heap of money, and... He looked up with straightforward eyes. We ain't going to lose it, if I have my way. We've rubbed along half-starved all our lives and done without things, till where... Well, look at us. I reckon we've made you laugh. Oh, I'll bet we have. Ma and me can stand it, but, mister, I don't want folks to laugh at my children. And there's other things I don't want to happen to him. But he's a wild hoss, and he's got a streak of the old Nick in him. And Allie ain't broke no better than him. I got a feeling there may be trouble ahead, and sometimes I almost wish we'd never had no oil in Texas. End of chapter 5